Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 161 of Yoga Land. It's also the start of season three, and we are starting with a live episode for season three with Jason and I. We recorded this this past summer at Tri-Yoga in London with Jason's 500-hour teacher training students. They were doing module one. So I am calling this episode the Getting to Know You episode. I should call it more specifically the Getting to Know Andrea episode. <laughs> but Jason explains at the top of the episode that when he gets people together for trainings, one of the things he's noticed over the years is that sometimes the introverts kind of disappear. It can be hard for an introverted person to to speak up right away, to ask questions. And even from the standpoint of just sometimes introverted people need to process things alone and before they come back and ask questions. So to sort of offset the dynamic of extroverts taking over, not that there's anything wrong with extroverts, we love you too, but to offset that dynamic, he gets people into small groups and they ask each other these questions that he asks me. So it's all about my yoga origin story and his yoga origin story, and it'll just help you get to know us and our perspective a little bit better. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that if you have not done a training with Jason, that you get together with some of your yoga friends and do this with each other. It might be a fun experiment. Jason will be back in London in January teaching module two, and then again in March teaching module three. You don't have to take the modules in order. So if you're interested, go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule. Also, there's a really exciting announcement, which is that he is teaching a 200-hour foundational training at Trioga in London next summer. So that'll be August of 2020. And again, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule to find out more. I should be at that training. I'm hoping to contribute a bit to that training as well. So... Without further ado, enjoy the episode and enjoy season three. I should do a little teaser for season three. So here goes. I'm excited. We have more conversations between Jason and I focusing on being of service to yoga teachers. I have an upcoming conversation happening with Shiva Ray, with Sean Korn, with Elena Brower. We're going to talk about the oils and how to support our, our immune systems in the coming months with the oils, with essential oils, I should say. And Susanna Harwood-Rubin and I are going to talk breast cancer. My friend Corey Cambridge, who is a rapper, is going to come on. It's just, I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. So enjoy. And if you have any feedback that you want to send me about guests or anything else, you can always email me at support at jasonyoga.com. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. How's it going? Good. What are you up to? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I am sitting across from you and lots of students and... London. I almost said San Francisco, but it's not. Uh, at Trioga, Camden. And this is day one, afternoon one of module one of the current advanced training. And there's lots of people out there. Yeah. And that's really nice. It is. It is really nice. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, we're going to talk about a couple things. One of the things that I always do, and this is kind of something that's different in that I didn't used to do it. One of the things that I have learned over the years is that different people need different environments in order to fully engage with the process. So for me as a yoga teacher teaching trainings, some students are really quiet and introverted in a larger group. And so we do more things nowadays to do small group 
elements within the training. And we have small group conversations. And because it's the first day, I'm settling in and I'm going to have everyone kind of talk about a little bit their origin story of how they came into yoga, why they came into yoga, describe kind of how their initial experience with the practice was and how they felt. And then I also want people to talk a little bit about what's currently happening for them, both as a student and as a teacher. The things that are going well for them and the things both as a student and teacher that they're getting stuck on or having some challenges with. So since that's the small group conversation that we're going to have later today, I thought that we could go over the exact same questions and spend a little bit of time going back into the rearview mirror for back us. into the archives. Back into the archives. <laughs> the ancient history. Of a thousand life. years ago. To talk a little bit about kind of where we came from and where we are now. I want to pause, hit pause for just a moment. Yeah. When I interviewed Kwame, who for the podcast, who was a student in Jason's recent San Francisco training, he talked about being an introvert and that he actually really liked the small group conversations. And he also said in those conversations, everyone realized how many introverts were in Jason's trainings. Totally. So I'm wondering like, how many people in this room would call themselves an introvert? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) And I've said this a bunch of times. I was saying this to them, right? Is that My training with Rodney and Richard and Mary and Patricia was just under a thousand hours. And it was a course of almost two years. I essentially spent a thousand hours trying to hide and not ask any questions. Because for me as a student, when I'm in the internal space of being a student, I'm really, really quiet. And it isn't that I don't think I'm shy or socially intimidated. It's that I take on different roles in different environments. So if I'm in the role of being a student, I'm not so much in the thinking or questioning brain. I'm more in the kind of receiving and digesting brain. So I often have questions, but I don't often have questions in the moment. I have questions like later on because I've processed it. It just took time to realize like this is actually a really important element within trainings is to have a lot of smaller communal things. And you know what? My trainings are pretty big right now, but even if my trainings were a quarter of the size, I would still do small groups Mm -hmm. because it's all relative. If you have 10 people in a training, then you're going to have like two dominant personalities and those two dominant personalities are going to become more and more dominant and everyone else is going to become less and less dominant. So even in that situation, splitting up the dynamic is a really important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say you in your natural habitat are the definition of an introvert. I would 100% agree. But I have the performer gene. Well, yeah, but an introvert, like you said, it doesn't mean that you can't turn it on and be social and be talkative. It just means that you recharge the most in in solitude or with... Yeah. Or you appreciate one-on-one yeah. conversation. I'm also better in, I think, both conversation and any group environment when I have something specific to talk about. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? An introvert thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Okay. So are we going to start with you and your... I'm going to ask you. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, well, you can ask. We'll ask each other. So I'm going to start, though, which is I want you to tell me and also the listeners, (laughs) this is not a private conversation, a little bit about why you started yoga and what your first class was like. Okay. It was 
1995, about, thereabouts. I'd been living in San Francisco for about a year. And my college roommate, who I moved to San Francisco with, said, you should try yoga. And that was why I started going to yoga. She took me to... Was it Rachel? No, it was Sarah. Okay. Yeah. Like the least... Yes. The person who probably... She probably never went to yoga again in her entire life. Least sort of embodied person. She wouldn't mind me saying that. So she and I went to yoga together. She took me to the Mindful Body, which is still there on California Street in San Francisco. Lovely little studio. And I was young. I was in a very kind of lost place in my life. I was anxious. So I remember loving the smell. When I entered, it probably smelled like lavender. I remember loving how quiet it was. I remember loving the big white curtains. Yeah, and super tall ceilings. And the very first class that I took was just kind of an unusual class because it was with Michael Cooper, who we've talked about a bunch on yeah, we the have. podcast recently. Yeah. He's since passed away. We loved him so much. He was such an important figure in the yoga community at that time. And what I didn't know was that prior to being a yoga teacher, Michael Cooper was a gymnast. <laughs> and he was like a probably in his mid-50s when I was taking his class. Yeah. He had kind of funny, like, mullet. Wild hair. He had like wild mullet hair. He did kind of have wild mullet He was hair. probably like five foot three. He was like At a small, best. stout guy. Yeah. And we went into his class and he proceeded to make us do somersaults around the room and he's super enthusiastic. Like, he's almost like a preschool teacher, you know? He's just yeah. like, good job. What's your name? Sarah. Good job. That kind of thing. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't... I definitely So it was more of a gymnastics pre- class. It was basically a, a gymnastics, gymnastics class. class. Yeah. And I left and Sarah said, that was really strange. That yeah. was not a yoga class. Yeah. And I was said, I don't care. I'll, I'll go back. So I think when I went back, I went to Yolanda Bain's class. Uh-huh. And she was my teacher for a few years. Yeah. She just called it Hatha Yoga. And it really yeah. was a very simple Hatha Yoga class. It wasn't vinyasa. It wasn't Iyengar. We did sun salutations, but she spent a ton of time in Tadasana. They were very slow sun salutations. Nothing was held for minutes at a time the way it is in an Iyengar class. And she wasn't, she didn't have like the strictness of a typical Iyengar teacher. She was really soft and lovely. And she started me on the path. Did you go pretty consistently to Yolanda's class? Yeah, I did for a couple of years. Oh, nice. So I would say consistently, like this was a slow burn for me. I probably went once or twice a week for yeah, yeah, a few yeah. years. Yeah. And then another friend of mine told me I had to go to a stronger class. I didn't know what that was. I just trusted this friend of mine. And so I went to this address. It was like this tiny little room on Shotwell and maybe 19th was kind of a burnout like district at that time. And I went up the stairs and I sat outside the room. There were all these people sitting outside the room and there was a class ahead of us. It was not a yoga studio. It was just a room. And it kind of appealed to me already because it reminded me of dance spaces. It smelled kind of, I don't know, musty. And out came a whole bunch of people who had just been doing a clowning class so there was like a big <laughs> rainbow wig. There were people with like, you know, things they were juggling and they all came out. And I was just like, cool. San Francisco in the mid-90s. Exactly. Like, yeah. this is exactly what yeah. I want to be. Yeah. And I That's went not in. not that way anymore. <laughs> no, I know. Well, it might yeah. be. Who knows? Uh-huh. Hopefully again. So I went in and she cranked up the heat. And there, were, there was just enough space to fit six people. 
And I had no idea it was a set sequence. And there I was, like, at the end of a row, just, like, looking around like this, doing proserita, you know, the whole thing, while everyone else was, like, intensely doing their practice. And that class was what made me start doing yoga every day. What was it about that class compared to, I mean, obviously with Yolanda's class, you started to drop in and it started to feel like yoga, but what was it about that early experience in that small room doing Ashtanga? It was the physical challenge. Yeah. It was that I had been a dancer. I was young and fit and I had, yoga hadn't been physically challenging for me yet. So it hadn't really hooked my mind as much. You mean Michael Cooper's front rolls and somersaults (laughs) didn't challenge you enough? Didn't quite challenge me enough. So it was a physical challenge. And then it was also that at the end of that class, the Shavasana was like, I was transported to a whole different place because I'd never done that much breath work and movement sync together ever. I I just had never experienced anything like that before. So I wanted that feeling more. Yeah. Do you feel like the Shavasana was the significant difference maker in what felt like yoga to you? as compared to what just felt like dancing or movement, right? Because obviously you weren't new to movement. You weren't new to being in your body. You weren't new to lengthening muscles and engaging muscles. It was a combination. So I would say the Shavasana was very, very important. And then the close second would be just being in a room and being asked to do really, really hard things and having the teacher be incredibly compassionate around it and yeah. like just creating a space that was humorous about it. Like, look what we're doing. Don't get stressed out about it. We're, you know, trying to put our leg behind our head. This is just have fun. Yeah. And that's really different from the the dance world that I grew up in. So where everything was just, it was, it's, I think dance is taught very differently now, but it was brutal. Like yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. This is built to be a performance. It's not built to. It's all aesthetics. Well, it was right. when I was doing right. it. Yeah. It's aesthetics and expression, but. Obviously, it's built to be a performance in the same way that a sport is built to be like no one plays hockey or football or basketball to be embodied. Right. <laughs> they use their body to accomplish a set amount of tasks to to win a thing. Right. Which I appreciate. I mean, I still love that stuff and engage with it, but it's a very different way of being inside and it's a very different psycho-emotional landscape. And I think for so many of us, You know, there's a lot of people that come to yoga having already done some overtly physical things prior. And there's also a lot of people that yoga is the first thing that they feel like in good command and ownership of their body in. And I think for those of us like you and I that came from some sort of rigorous physical discipline, yoga was this really nice middle ground where we were able to work hard and feel embodied and engaged. And yet at the same time, there wasn't a score, there wasn't a performance and that there was a broader narrative of self-awareness and I kind of work hard, let it go, work hard, let it go. And that creates an internal freedom that, that other sports and other movement disciplines can can really, uh, can struggle to find. I think often about why is yoga so popular? Why do so many adults start doing yoga and just go bonkers over it, right? And I think it's because it's just one of the few learning environments that we, we enter where we are told that it's not a competition, <laughs> that it's not about achievement, 
that you can have goals, but I mean, really, it's just about being where you are and looking at yourself and accepting yourself. That is so rare. Yeah. And um, I just think we all need it. And I think those of us who find it are really fortunate. Yeah. So you started to touch on this earlier, but what would you say is was some of the primary motivation for you to keep coming back? Like once you settled in, that was with Alice, right? Yeah. Okay. So once you settled in, what was it that really compelled you and got you on the hook? So I, after that one Ashtanga class, I found a MySource studio not too far from me and started going there. And she had traditional Mysore in the morning, but then she also had Ashtanga classes that she taught in the evening. So just depending on my work schedule, I would go to either. I guess I would say I was still, you know, I was still in my mid-20s. I was still a bit lost. And I knew that exercising was good for me, but outside of dance, I had never found, like I tried to go to the gym and I didn't like the way it smelled. You know, I just, I had never found another setting where I could get a physical workout and still feel happy and sure, good sure, sure, afterward. Sure, sure, sure. So it was really that simple. And then I would say also in the Mysore space, it's like one of the nice things about a Mysore community is that it's a community. Totally. It's really tiny. You know, you're facing each other, you're looking at each other. And so she created a really nice little community and she was a really funny, entertaining person. So she was very charismatic and we all loved being in her space. Yeah, when I think back about my time as a yoga practitioner, I mean, I didn't do Mysore that long. I spent most of my time when I practiced Ashtanga going to lead classes. And there's a lot of things I don't miss about Ashtanga, but I do miss the experience of a Mysore room, you yeah. know? And, and you know, I'll say one thing about it, right? This is day one. And one of the main things that we've been focused on, really the main thing that we focused on is pacing. And if anyone steps back and looks at people, high-level Ashtangis in a yoga room, in a Mysore room, look at their pace. It ain't fast. It's not cluttered. It's simple. It's clean. It's paced. It's beautiful. It's consistent. And I think that one of the challenges that we have in the modern yoga world is things get so sped up that when things aren't so sped up, they're referred to as slow. But no one back in the day would look at Ashtanga yoga and be like, that's slow. Like, <laughs> right, right. That's, that's so much of what vinyasa comes from, right? Yeah. But when you let people go inside and move in a consistent, paced way, what you'll find is almost inevitably, they all go to the same pace of motion. And that pace of motion is the pace of a long, slow, smooth, deep ujjayi breath. So I'm not sure how we can continue to build the vinyasa world without going back to this pace. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important that we just take a step back and disentangle dynamic with overloaded and fast. And that was one of the most powerful things is the quietness of that room, but also the pace of that room and the intensity that came from that deliberate pace and that deliberate quietness. Mm -hmm. It's something I miss. Yeah. Yeah. There's also something about, I mean, I would say the other thing, the last thing that was compelling to me about early yoga practice is just entering a room and the teacher setting the tone that there's like a feeling of contentment in this room. And it goes back to that, you know, not striving to, you know, win or compete or accomplish a goal. But I think the pace does contribute to that feeling of For contentment sure. too. For sure. It can, you know, it's just like, 
this is a place where you actually get to slow down and appreciate where you are. Yeah. So you are not a yoga teacher. No, not anymore. But (laughs) at one time you were a yoga teacher. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that leap? You became a consistent yoga practitioner. You got hooked into it. And then at some point you decided this, I'm going to teach this stuff. I'm trying to remember. I was an early hire at a dot-com company and I worked there for about four years and it grew and grew and grew and did all the things that dot-com companies did in that first wave, like acquisitions. And we went public and we went from like 15 employees to 500. And it's too bad you weren't the principal owner. Both coasts. I was very far from the principal <laughs> owner, very far. But I was there for four years and that felt like an eternity at that time. And I knew that I was kind of, I'd gone as far as I could go there. And it was right before everything bombed actually. And I think, I don't know how I decided, but I just found the teacher training program that I wanted to do. Okay. So you trained with Sarah Powers. Yes. So did you take class with Sarah beforehand or? No. Okay. Okay. But Nikki Estrada, who was an early teacher of yeah. mine, had been trained by Sarah and was had said, like, I teach a lot like Sarah. Okay. Yeah. So you had started to think, I'm going to do a teacher training program. And then you researched a little bit of the training programs. Mm-hmm. And was it Yoga Studio Mill Valley at the time? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was over in Mill Valley. Okay. It was six months and it was weekends. So that meant I could keep working. And I know that TS was part of faculty and you mm-hmm. guys really love TS. So TS came in and taught... Anatomy. Anatomy. For several weekends. Okay. So that was the other thing what I other, liked about what other, it. Were there other guest teachers? Yeah. It was really less of a teacher training and more of a, a yoga immersion. So Sarah taught... I think everything was at that time. Yeah. I mean, even my program, which was so long, was the same. Oh, really? I was I never taught sequencing. Right. No. I was never taught manual adjustments. We were taught I was never taught verbal cues. And we were taught about injuries. I was never taught... Like It was like, you spent a month practicing with Rodney. Then you spend a month practicing with Richard. Then you'd spend a month practicing with Mary. Then you spend a much month practicing with Patricia. And then it circled back. Hmm. Beginning to end, that's all it was. Yeah. And it was so good in that way. But like everything that I teach in my trainings, the second half of the day, all the teaching methodology stuff, there was no structure built into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was it was like an overview. We Sarah taught yin and meditation and some vinyasa. She had Paul Grilly come in and teach yin. She had Maritza taught Anusara, which is why I loved Anusara because she was Because Maritza introdu- taught it. She's amazing. Yeah. She's still teaching. Uh, she really? Yeah. Lisa Walford came up from LA and taught Iyengar. Tias taught anatomy. And I think that's it. That's a remarkably, I mean. It was amazing. Not, there's some of those people aren't as commercially known nowadays. But in terms of high-level faculty, and especially of like really influential people of a generation, it's yeah. amazing. It was amazing. So how long did you teach? I taught part-time for two years. How many, like a rap part-time was around how many classes? Well, it really varied because I was always <laughs> leaving. <laughs> I taught like you mean one you're always to, taking one and then dropping one? Yeah, because I was working. <laughs> I was working full time. And then I was teaching Saturdays and Sundays. I had no days off for months at a time. It was pretty intense. So I taught about one to three classes a okay. week. Okay. <laughs> 
And you didn't stick with it. I did not. We don't need to go into that sob story. <laughs> I, just, there- I found, you know, I mean, I found a job where I was able to combine my love for yoga with the things that I'm genuinely good at. Right. Media. Right. Okay. So now podcasting. Mm-hmm. Because this is something interesting for me, right? Because I have a perspective on you that you are a yoga teacher. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was in my late 30s by the time I took the training. And there were a couple women who were in their 50s or 60s. And I can remember looking at them and how grounded they were. And they'd already had a career or they'd already raised their children or both. And they were ready for sort of the second career. Yeah. And I knew that they were going to do really well. I could just tell that they were ready. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe I'll teach again when I'm in my 50s. Like maybe when I'm older, it will be better, a better time for me as a person. Yeah, but that's actually I'm not, not in even... my 50s yet, by the way. But, <laughs> but I am leaning more in the direction of... But that's actually not what I meant. What I meant is you do not conduct public yoga classes, but you teach yoga via this podcast all of the time. Like you are a yoga educator. You know, I mean, when I think about yoga and the other things that I'm interested in, I think about like the podcasts I listen to and what I learn about the world and what I learn about specific topics and what I learn about specific sports, not doing those things, but listening to high level people talk about those things. So in that way, I actually think that the content that you provide via this medium is super educational and super inspiring. So in a way, you are not, like you're not telling people inhale, exhale, right leg up, right leg forward, but you are providing an education and an experience of yoga through this medium. And this medium is, I kind of want to compare it and then I just have two final questions for you. I kind of want your insight into your experience between sharing your love and knowledge of yoga via podcast versus sharing it via being an editor or having been an editor for Yoga Journal for a long time. Mm -hmm. And kind of like internally how you feel about those two different roles. They feel really different, which is great because that's what kind of what I was looking for. So you want to know how they're different and how they're similar or... Just how they're different. Yeah. I mean, I think you like podcasting more. I do. I do. There's a lot more freedom. Or you enjoy it more. I enjoy it more. Okay. That doesn't mean it's still as existentially as satisfying because those aren't always the same thing. Well, I think I worked at Yoga Journal for so long. Right. There was maybe a peak of it being existentially satisfying. And then like any job, the long, you know, if you're sort of doing the same thing over and over, it, it loses its luster a little bit. But yeah, there was a peak when I think probably when I was first doing covers, like doing more shoots on my own and working more directly with photographers who are just really creative people yeah, and working more directly with really adept yoga practitioners who are also very creative people. That was sort of like the peak. Or working with Sally Kempton was also like a great period of time for me. But the podcast is a lot more fun. There's a lot more freedom. I like being able to connect with guests so directly I've been introduced to so many people that I never would have been introduced to before. It's a much more direct medium. So I worked at Yoga Journal for 10 years. I could have walked, I probably did walk into teacher training rooms and people were like, oh, there's Jason's wife. No one knew that I was sure, a writer. Sure, or sure, that sure. It, it, it's just a very, you're in people's 
ears. You're in people's heads. It's so much more personal. It's really direct and intimate and personal, which is which is fun. Yeah. Yeah. So my final two questions is, so a lot of that was how you got to where you currently are. And now, you know, and the questions that I ask people to talk about within the small groups is, what are the things as a teacher that are going really well for you right now? And what are the things as a teacher that you're really struggling with, which are challenges for you? So I'll ask you the same thing, but with regards to being a podcaster and running the show. So now, what are some of the bigger challenges that you deal with day to day or month to month, just continuing to produce mm-hmm. content for the show? I would, I'll start with what's going well, because I think it's encouraging for people to hear that when I started publishing the podcast, it felt like any the beginning of any creative project where you're sort of pushing the boulder up the hill and you're like, oh, this is like taking so much longer than I want it to. And the prep is taking longer and the production's taking longer. And it felt a little like a bit of a grind. And so three plus years in, it doesn't feel like a grind in that way. It feels easier to produce and more natural and I'm less nervous and just more comfortable. So that's those are the great things that happen when you decide to publish consistently in any in any realm. In terms of challenges, I would just say continuing to tell great stories. It's always the challenge. And just continuing to find great stories and schedule them and get it just get it all done. That is challenging. And then I would say also when I started the podcast, I think I saw it as a way to talk about yoga but also to talk about wellness in general and just to kind of broaden out a little bit and I haven't done that as much as I had originally wanted to because it takes more thought and work than I thought it would to find people outside of the yoga community who are connected enough in the way that I want them to be. And then there's also kind of like once you have an audience, you start to think more about the audience's desires. In the beginning, I had zero listeners. So it was like, I'm going to do whatever I want. And now it's a little bit like, well, does someone really want to hear this from this person? Or are they going to feel like it's too far outside of yoga? So that I'm always, I'm always thinking about. So I just want to say a word about tying this into being a yoga teacher, which is yoga teachers go through the same thing, right? One of the bigger challenges as a yoga teacher is that when you develop a certain amount of consistency or demand or success, it becomes that much more difficult to make creative changes, right? right? I mean, can you imagine being like a really popular pop musician and then settling into a groove and then trying to create a second album or a third album or a fourth album with a totally different feel because creatively or aesthetically you want to go in a different direction, but you've built up a base. You've not only built up a base, you've built up an identity, are you comparing yourself to Justin Timberlake? I'm a right lot now? like Justin Timberlake. I'm going to put it a little bit different. I would say Justin Timberlake is a little bit like me. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Justin sometimes like, they're like, oh, you're like the Jason Crandall of singing. <laughs> <laughs> so he was in NSYNC before. Younger, be- younger you better looking, before? better. Me? Yeah, he was in NSYNC and then he went to his solo career. Yeah. There's no parallel. There's no parallel. Road skateboards? Yeah. But no, I think this that scope, you know, like scope and identity becomes challenging, right? You go back and forth. I remember because we were just having this conversation about how much do you broaden the field to include kind of the broader yoga wellness affiliated milieu versus how much are you on topic, 
talking to people like me and Jules about like tendons and ligaments right. and elastic <laughs> ligaments. You know what I mean? Like elastic profiles. Because, because, and then how like servicey are you? Yeah. How much are you providing a service where people are learning versus how much are you providing a story that you are generally interested in, in displaying that story? And it's interesting to me that as a yoga teacher, there are so many parallels. And the more you get, I won't say the more you get typecast, but the more consistent you are mm-hmm. and therefore develop a base and an identity around that thing, the harder it is to make any change, even if you want to make change. Mm-hmm. We started the beginning of last season right? We started the beginning of last season. The first podcast of last season was about this topic, was about going through the process of being a yoga student and being a yoga teacher and wanting to make change and how complicated and difficult that is. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think of Richard Rosen when I think about this topic because he would just always say the same thing to me if I edited him in a way that he didn't approve of or something like that. Andrea, I just got to be me, okay? I just got to be me. <laughs> and I mean, it, it was, it, it sounds trite, but I mean, it, it was, it was meaningful. Like yeah. you have to, you have to balance things obviously, but at the end of the day, you have to feel good about yourself and what you're putting out into the world. I have nothing else to say. So it's your turn. Oh, you don't have to go through all those things with me. I thought that's what we were doing. I, I kind of just kind of baited you. I think I interviewed you. Oh, here, I'll answer them really quickly. Okay. How did I get into yoga? My girlfriend at the time made me. How did I feel about yoga? I did not like it. <laughs> um, what kept me coming back? I needed to earn one credit hour and not fail college. What got me into teaching yoga? My teacher at the time said, you should take over my yoga classes. Which teacher was that? Josh Feinblum. Ashtanga. Oh, nice. That was a generation, right? I mean, I remember joking not so long ago about like, do you think Dharma Mitra did a teacher training program? You know what I mean? Like, n- not to put myself in that same era, but no, but Justin Timberlake, Dharma Mitra. He wishes. He's they gonna wish. compare himself to Krishnamacharya next. Or yeah, I mean, we could keep going. That's kind of weird. <laughs> but my point is, is like I was towards the end of a generation where the majority of people that were teaching were because their teacher said, can you take this class over for me? One of my Ashtanga teachers at the time, Josh Feinblum, was done teaching these two beginning classes. And I was in graduate school for international relations and I was working as a warehouseman. When he said, will you take over these Ashtanga classes? I said, sure. So you got, that's how you got rid of your Warehouse job? I didn't get rid of my warehouse job for years. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I said this on other podcasts, which is I had a second job for at least the first 10 years of teaching yoga. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. yeah. Slowly but surely, it became more yoga related. Mm-hmm. But for the first four years, I was working in a warehouse full time and then starting to teach more and more full time. So, when Josh asked me to teach, I taught for maybe a year and a half or two years. And realized that I had no idea what the hell I was doing. (laughs) Like as a teacher, like I knew how to be like inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. And I knew the primary series and I was just teaching intro. So it was like couple surya A, couple surya B, standing series and like the first three or four seated postures and call it a day. a great way to start. Well, so this is something I talk about and reflect on a lot 
is one of the great things about learning to teach via a set sequence is you don't have to do one of the most demanding and dynamic elements of teaching yoga, which is sequencing, which I think in the beginning for most people is a huge benefit and a huge stress relief. But in the end, essentially for me personally, it it didn't allow me the creativity and the voice that I wanted to include. Because for me, in order to teach something, I have to I have to have a whole construct built for it, which is the sequence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a really great, super great and easy thing. But when I realized that I was starting to move away from Ashtanga and that I needed a little bit more structure, that's when I fell into to Rodney and the program I spoke of earlier. But wait, so you were living in San Francisco at the yeah. time, teaching in San Francisco. Correct. How did you get yourself over to Oakland and Piedmont Yoga Studio where Rodney and Richard and the other Mary and... Bay Area Rapid Transit. How did you find out about it? Because prior to that, I did Rodney's videos, his <laughs> video cassettes. Really? Yeah. So then you went, you on, the, you went on the internet and you were like, where is no, Rodney? No, no, no. Chris can I Sandra meet did. Him? Oh, the yeah. same girlfriend. Same girlfriend. <laughs> um, God bless you, Cassandra. Yeah. She was like, hey, Rodney has a studio over on the other side Did of the bank. Did you and Cassandra do the Rodney? I know her, by the way. She's a wonderful person. Did you guys do the videos together? Uh, That's adorable. <laughs> Just say that you did. We did. It's too cute. We did. Oh. And cute. it was, it's kind of like, we'll put it this way. I'm a little over a foot taller than her. Yeah. She's like smaller than me. Yeah. yeah. And you know how people would be like, well, you're no good or bad at yoga. Actually, yeah, there is. And, and I was really bad. And she is natural. one of the most adept people. I've She's one of the, ever she became one life. of the most adept practitioners I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. But even prior to it, like what's that thing called where you Mandalasana. Yeah, she can do that. Yeah, because she studied with Peter Stereos and it's just the whole world of Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, so yes, yeah, so I would went to Rodney's classes and and I'll say this too is is that when I started taking class over there with Rodney and then doing this training. I felt like a whole nother world of yoga opened up. It was a world where the yoga practice was an expression of the human experience. Up till then, it had felt like really good exercise with like nice emotional coaching. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it didn't feel like this, this contemplative... Rodney just had a way of getting into people's psyches and forcing them one way or another to look at what's happening inside. Whereas my teachers up to that point who had been great teachers, it felt like good movement and breath with some like good, it sounds so negative. I don't mean a negative of like platitudes of like work hard, but don't work too hard. Work hard, but then relax. This isn't a performance. This isn't a competition. Kind of like we talked earlier. The world of working with Rodney was a totally different world. Hmm. I mean, I just all of a sudden felt kind of like the human, like the yoga room was a place for the human condition to kind of play itself out in a very deep and impactful way. So I did that training and that opened a lot of doors because I was in the right time at the right place. And then... Um, yeah. Challenges. What challenges now? Mm-hmm. None. That's the right answer in this setting. <laughs> no, the challenges now, there's a lot of challenges now. I think one of the biggest challenges that I have now as a yoga teacher, well, I can break it, I can break it into different segments. Okay. 
for me, the challenge of teaching public classes is at this phase of my life, I just can't teach random 90-minute class. Like, I, I would rather, like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just can't imagine walking into a class and only thinking about it as a 90-minute class where my job was to make people feel good and entertain themselves. Because it's been over 20 years of doing that. So for me, everything has to be tied to some broader set of teachings that I'm trying to provide. And I teach in monthly and quarterly increments. I kind of conduct my drop-in classes as if each class is one class in a semester of learning. So every class is comprehensive and complete, but it's also connected to the previous class and to the next class, almost like a serial television show, right? It's like each episode has to work in and of itself, and yet there's a seasonal arc. And so for me, teaching like a random class would feel more like a sketch comedy. You know what I mean? As opposed to like a seasonal arc of something. That's my challenge is to continue to convey to a student base, and I have a really big student base at home, but to continue to convey to them the value of being consistent and having a consistent sequence where you progressively and intentionally develop an understanding of subject over time. So each one of those classes can feel really good, but ultimately there should be like a season of learning something. So I think that that's it for me as a teacher in that environment. And then for teacher trainings, I think one of the challenges is like, this sounds to me like something I would never say in the past, but is using my energy well. So for me, I have always just put it all out when I teach 100% full throttle, beginning to end, go, go, go. And now trying to kind of pace my own intensity because when I teach one of these programs, it it's, gets intense. It's a lot of talk. It's a lot of focus. It's a lot of development. And so trying to not say too many things too quickly about too many different subjects, but kind of allow the two-week increment to unfold instead of feeling like I have to force it to happen now, that that's a challenging thing for me to pace myself in this context. I tend to get kind of secondary and tertiary. Like if I say something, then there's two or three things on top of that thing that I want to say and follow up on. So for me to say internally tomorrow, Mm -hmm. tomorrow and the next day, I'll get to that tomorrow and the next day, as opposed to like in this one class, we will do every damn thing that we will do for the next two weeks. Spread that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a sign of maturity. Yeah. And then I would say what's going really well think what's going really well for me is the flip side of those, which is, or going back to Richard, I know what I do well, and I know who I am, and I know what value I have to contribute, and I don't really try to do things that are that out of that scope. I know what level of specialization I provide, and I just try to provide that thing that I'm really good at providing. And understand that for most modern yoga teachers, they aren't going to have a single teacher from which they get everything. But they're going to have a couple of teachers, right? So I can give them quiet and focus and stillness and consistency. Someone else can give them the playlist and more of the quick movement and more of the sort of 
more complex combinations of different things because most students nowadays want a couple of different teachers that provides them with those different kind of experiences yeah. of what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So for me, it feels really comfortable to know who I am and to not try to be or provide something that really just isn't in the scope or the interest or the skill set of what I is interested in in providing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All right. I think we're good. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. I am going to put a link to the interview I did with Susan Cain, who is author of the book Quiet, which is a New York Times bestseller. Susan Cain is a speaker, and the main topic that she speaks and writes about is introversion. So I had a conversation with Susan, gosh, almost two years ago about being an introvert in the yoga room and as a yoga teacher. And I will link to that on the show notes page. It's a great interview. And you can find that at yogalandpodcast.com dot com slash episode 161. Thanks so much for listening and until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm.